Welcome to Francis Investment Council's Fiduciary Advice at Work podcast. Here we discuss industry trends and issues that affect retirement plan fiduciaries. I'm Ann Lapnow, Business Development Consultant for Francis Investment Council. In this episode, we're turning our focus toward institutional investing. We have the opportunity to listen in as two industry experts talk macroeconomics and apply principles from that discussion to more specific investing scenarios. The discussion today will be hosted by Francis Investment Council's Director of Research, Ed McElveen. Ed is a principal member of our firm and leads our investment research team. In his role, Ed oversees ongoing capital markets and investment manager reviews for institutional clients. He also conducts asset allocation analysis and modern portfolio theory-based asset allocation optimizations. Ed and his team perform regular on-site investment manager due diligence to remain on the forefront of industry trends. He joined our team in 2005 and has over 14 years of investment research-focused experience. Joining Ed today is a special guest, Scott Preby from Geneva Capital Management. Geneva is an independent, majority employee-owned investment management firm founded in 1987. By following a single disciplined approach and matching that approach with a culture of teamwork and open dialogue, Geneva creates high-quality portfolios across U.S. small and mid-cap stocks. Scott specifically serves as a managing principal and portfolio manager. He co-manages the Geneva small cap, mid cap, smid cap, and all cap growth strategies, supporting them through high quality fundamental research. Prior to joining Geneva in 2004, Scott worked for Eli Lilly and Company, and his resume includes 16 years of financial industry experience. Now that you know a little bit more about our guests, let's take a look at where we're at today. Right now, we have a worldwide pandemic to contend with and tremendous market volatility. 2020 thus far has been a year for the record books. So let's listen in as Ed and Scott cover current economic conditions, investing strategies, and investment opportunities. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today as we talk about financial markets and investable opportunities. We have so many things that we could possibly dive into here, and I thought that it would probably just make the most sense to start very high level, talk about some macroeconomics, and just get your perspective as a professional money manager. How have you approached the unknowns when forecasting your mid to longer term economic viewpoints, just given all the unknowns that we are facing right now? It's a great question. Uh, It's the question. And if you read our economic outlook, which we publish every quarter, the one that we published in January didn't anticipate a global pandemic that would include quarantining, sheltering in place on a global basis, literally shutting down the world economy. So we developed a framework is is how we deal with this. We develop a framework whereby, depending on how long this situation lasts, sheltering in place, quarantining, businesses shut down, et cetera, will depend on how deep the recession ultimately goes. The longer it goes, the higher chance of a full-blown depression, the more quickly we can get back to some semblance of normalcy, the shallower the recession. And so as we sit here today in the state of Wisconsin, which has been opening up amongst other states, we feel as though the recession will be painful but possibly shorter than what we initially anticipated in the depths of the the market correction in March. What gives you the confidence that we can shorten this cycle? Is Is there something from a policy perspective that differs here that helps speed things up? Or is there just greater flexibility in the economy 
given some of the technological innovations that we've all experienced and been using for the last couple of decades? There's a couple really important points in there. Uh, the last one I'll address first, and that is the idea of flexibility, uh, technology enablement, if you will, whereby we had a lot of different trends that were sort of on the precipice, working from home being one of them. And even in our industry, we felt that you know working from home is certainly doable from a business continuity perspective, disaster recovery. But again, I don't think anyone seriously anticipated a global pandemic with the likes that we're experiencing today. As a result of this, I think there is some comfort in the fact that people can work remotely effectively. You can conduct meetings, or in this case, a webcast, uh, or, or to discuss certain things and communicate with your clients, even though we're in four different places, or five different places, or ten different places, you can conduct a meeting with some semblance of normal, normalcy and be effective and productive in your work. So I think that flexibility, to your point, is something that's helping many of the industries out there. However, uh, there's a tremendous number of, of workers that are going to be displaced. And our concern over the shorter term is really trying to figure out how we get people engaged back into the labor force, which of course, uh, right now the government is, is, I think, acted quickly to your first question. I think the Federal Reserve acted quickly and with magnitude to address some of the issues that were developing in the credit markets. Uh, I think they have, the Fed that is, has shown both in the great financial crisis as well in this experience that they are willing to go big and move quickly and address some of these issues with frankly little concern to longer term consequences because we sort of need to, you know, win this battle to win the war, if you will. And, and so as a result of that, the actions of the Fed and, and the government uh, stepping in with record level monetary and fiscal stimulus, I think is, is helping us bridge this gap between shutting everything down and, and reopening the economy. But it really is important that we get this economy moving quickly. Uh, we get people back to work. Obviously, things are going to change. Uh, we have to be careful. Uh, wearing masks most likely will be a way of life. If you talk to anyone who has traveled recently on an airplane, it is very different than it was before. Uh, and so those are the accommodations we're going to have to make. But I think in order to get the economy back going, people are willing to make that sacrifice and, and, and move forward so we can get back to our, our normal lives. And I think there's a longing to do that at this point. Scott, one of the things that has emerged over this really this last 90 days is to be thinking about globalization and even deglobalization. And, and I'm curious from your perspective, there's been so much talk over many decades about the dream of an uber globalized, super connected world. And is that at risk? Is that changing? What are the things that from a go forward basis you would be thinking about as an investor when you think about globalization and deglobalization in the context of the here and now? That's a great question. Uh, the idea of globalization, I don't think goes away, but I do think that both this pandemic as well as the recent China-US trade spat put into forefront a focus from a company's perspective or a company's management standpoint, where they are at risk in their supply chain. And certainly I think there will be what has been talked about for a number of years come to fruition, and that is somewhat of a manufacturing renaissance in the United States. Uh, but it'd also be a boon to other countries. And so those businesses, those industries that look at their supply chain and say, well, we're really at risk if something goes awry with U.S.-China relations, 
we should probably look to repurpose some of that to other areas, perhaps Taiwan, Indonesia, Malaysia, et cetera. But also being the largest economy in the world, perhaps it does make sense in some industries to reshore, if you will, back into the United States. You've seen that in some respects uh, over the years uh, with respect to pharmaceuticals as an example. Uh, it used to be that we manufactured most of our vaccines and pharmaceuticals, at least in U.S. territories like Puerto Rico, because the tax code incented it. As that tax code changed, you have seen us move a lot of that manufacturing to other areas like Ireland or China. So it would not surprise me in the least bit following this pandemic to see from a national security perspective a focus on getting some of these key industries back into the United States from a manufacturing standpoint. And you've seen that happen just in terms of whether we like it or not, we will be part of the global economy because in some industries such as energy, we are tethered to a global commodity price. And so for a number of years, it was said that uh, the United States would always be a net export exporter of energy, but give, high, give markets a chance, give high prices, uh, give the industry high prices, and what you will see is a reaction. And in this case, in the United States, we saw innovation with respect to the introduction of fracking uh, and, and 4D seismic, things of that nature, that turned us from a net importer to a net exporter of energy. And so you'll see those ebbs and flows over the years, uh, I think, with respect to our manufacturing base and how we produce. Uh, but the idea of connectivity, I don't think, goes away. And I think there are some trends, such as 5G, which will continually uh, move towards more you know, connectedness from a, from a global perspective. Uh, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a smooth ride. I mean, if, just to use energy as an example, recently you had the, the double whammy of a demand drop due to the pandemic and a supply shock due to what's happening with respect to Saudi Arabia and Russia and not being able to agree on, on the correct output number uh, with respect to OPEC. Yeah, and that was really something that came at a moment when there was an enormous amount of uncertainty from the economy coming to a screeching halt. And now out of nowhere, investors have to deal with another wild card unknown. And that is the functioning or rather the lack thereof of OPEC. And, and clearly the price of oil uh, re responded uh, significantly uh, to the downside as a result of all that as a price war got up and going. And so here, you, you talk about all these changes and things that are really happening in a span of uh, 60 to 90 days when we all deal with coronavirus. Now you throw into the mix this oil crisis on top of that. It really leads to uh, you know an area that we hear a lot of people talk about, and it's the psychology of investing. And it, it becomes harder and harder, I think, for all of us to make decisions in the midst of you know, significant market volatility. And now you have another factor to consider between Saudi Arabia and Russia. So when you think about these global events and you think about the, the domestic economy and what the start and stop dates are going to be for potentially a restart of the economy, um, how have you and your team dealt with the market volatility of 2020? And is this environment different from say a 2008 or other periods of time that your firm has managed money through? It is a little different, but it, it's somewhat similar in certain respects. It's different in the sense that the, the great financial crisis was you know, essentially a, a purely financial crisis, right? Uh, this pandemic is a demand and supply crisis occurring in a very short period of time, virtually overnight. 
there were some signs in 2008 that things were devolving. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, you know, we, we got out of it through massive government intervention. This time around, it's a little different because I think we've learned from some of those mistakes. And we acted in size and scope in a similar fashion to 2008, except we did it in a few weeks' time frame as opposed to over several months. So in some respects, the response has been better this time around. And that gives you a little bit of confidence that, that we will get some support for the, for the markets. Now, the psychology of investing, of course, is, is the difficult part. And they say you are supposed to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And you see that in individuals' response. Uh, some of our clients were incredibly fearful in the midst of March when so many unknowns existed with respect to the pandemic and the mortality rate and how contagious it was and how quickly it was spreading. Uh, and, and so the, the idea or the notion of trimming equities and going into quote unquote safer investments uh, certainly resonated with many, with many clients. But of course, in reality, in the midst of that is, is the time that you want to buy. And so we've tried to follow that adage of uh, being disciplined. Uh, we had a couple names uh, in our strategies that we've been following for, in some cases, more than a year. The valuations were extreme. And I think that those type of opportunities come along rarely where you can take advantage of this volatility. And I was talking to our trader this morning, actually. We have been more active than we have in years over the last couple months uh, as a result of this, uh, of this volatility. And, and I think that's what, that's what you have to do. That's the mindset is you look for, you look at the business itself, you look to its idiosyncratic drivers, and you try to let the emotion of everything around you sort of dissipate. Look at the general macro environment and understand where your risks are, uh, but at the same time, really focus on those company fundamentals because similar to the last crisis, we are fairly convinced that the survivors and those that have financial flexibility coming into this pandemic will emerge stronger. And you're already seeing it as companies are reporting earnings. Those with the flexibility aren't cutting back on, on expenses. They're increasing R&D. They're increasing sales and marketing uh, because they can. And their competitors may be laying off workers in mass, uh, which would not surprise you given the rate of unemployment. Uh, that you're seeing across a variety of different industries. And so, you know, that's how we're looking at it. What are the businesses doing to confront this difficult environment? Are they acting as we would suspect? Do we think that their business models are impaired as a result of what's happening in this pandemic? And where do we see them, not just next year, but in, in two years from a competitive perspective? And then what do you pay for that? I think that's the bigger question, Ed, right now is, from a multiple perspective, I think this has shocked many people how well growth has done over the last couple months. You know, when when I hear some of the things that you're mentioning here, and you you referenced a couple of opportunities that presented themselves in the midst of the sell-off, the reason why they looked like opportunities is because you had been following them for a year's time, you had done research on this, and so there's evidence that you're doing that work when there's not the emotional component to bring along with the here and now, but the uh, opportunity is really driven by the price uh, after you have actually done the work. And, and when you talk about the performance of growth uh, in the current market environment, can you just provide a little bit more uh, color on that? Uh, we get a lot of questions about that as well in terms of how much longer does this go on? Uh, looking at growth 
oriented equities versus value securities. Why is there such a large dispersion and why does it continue? Well, if you look at the value sectors, I say sectors because there are some industries that are perennially considered value, like energy or in many cases, financials, not necessarily fintech, but you know, traditional banks, et cetera. Uh, you're looking at the banking sector. I don't know what your house view is, Ed, on interest rates, but those over the last decade that have called for higher interest rates have been sorely uh, misguided in that assumption. Those that have called for higher inflation have been wrong in some respects. You're seeing inflation in things like financial assets as an example, but not necessarily manifesting in CPI. So I think that there are some structural issues that some of those value industries are facing. On the flip side, there's tremendous opportunity in areas as technology sort of pervades our everyday life. Not only does it pervade our everyday life, but it gives entrepreneurs the ability to create businesses with much less friction. And so from, from our standpoint, you know, we feel as though growth will still be at a premium, especially in a what we believe to be evolving into a sluggishly stubborn recovery. And as such, perhaps the notion of what a quote unquote is expensive for any company in its individual industry should be readjusted upward, especially if there's idiosyncratic drivers. Now, one has to make sure you don't fall into the mindset of what occurred during the nifty 50. Uh, back then, no premium was too much to be paid for the these 50 great stocks uh, because they would uh, grow forever. They had idiosyncratic drivers, all the things that I'm saying. So you can't be foolish in your pursuit of growth. But we do think that there are a tremendous number of business models that will continue to grow through this uh, pandemic. And I think where people get it wrong is on the E side of PE, where that uh, may look expensive today, but good companies, good management teams tend to surprise you by doing innovative things. They're not sitting in a vacuum saying, boy, our stock is expensive. What are we going to do? They're continuing to innovate. They're continuing to invest. And that E tends to be a lot higher than, than what's projected today. And as a result, uh, the valuation isn't as egregious. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about investable opportunities. And uh, we've talked uh, a little bit here about technology and how that provides more flexibility, whether it's entrepreneurship or if you're going to be bringing supply chains back into the United States and so on. I wanted to turn the focus to the consumer uh, because so much of our economy is consumer driven. And one of the stocks that you own is Allegiant Travel. was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the background of that business. And just to tee this up a little bit, you know, they're, they are really feeding a lot of people to leisure places like Las Vegas, Florida, Southern California. When do these places reopen? And what are the signposts that you're looking at that consumers are going to show evidence that they're willing to come out of the bunker? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Ed. Uh, Allegiant is one, you know, when during difficult times, we call it an airline. During great times, we call it a travel company. Um but, but they truly are a travel company. And to give you a little bit of background, they started uh, with the business model of buying used aircraft. Back in the day, it was the old MD-80s. And they would fly from non-major airports. So here in Wisconsin, instead of Milwaukee, it might be out of uh, Appleton or Green Bay, or instead of out of Chicago, it might be out of Rockford, to destination locations like Las Vegas, as you mentioned, or Florida. And, and so... It, was a, it is a no-frills airline. Over the last number of years, they've managed to transition their entire fleet uh, over to the A320 platform. 
much more fuel efficient, much more comfortable, much less maintenance. And they, they did that, we think, in a, in a pretty seamless fashion given the Herculean task of doing such a thing. Uh, I think part of that is derived in the fact that management is a significant owner of the business. Uh, the CEO owns nearly 20% of the outstanding shares. Uh, over the last couple of years, they've tried to expand their offerings by actually offering Allegiant-owned facilities in those destination locations, starting in Florida with the, their Sunseeker Resort. This pandemic, I think, took everybody by surprise, including them. They were very quick early on to, to take down costs as aggressively as possible, look at their routes, fly only when profitable to the extent that they could, uh, shut down all necessary construction investments in non-core related areas. But of all the other, of all the airlines, they are probably one of the top two from a liquidity perspective uh, and, and a cash burn standpoint. And so from that standpoint, as many airlines are going to suffer, they, it should be an opportune time to purchase used aircraft. And, and that over the years has been how they grow is to purchase aircraft smartly, astutely, and put them into routes where they know they can make some money. Now, the second part of your question is when are things going to open up is really the key. You're starting to see, for example, this last weekend, in destination locations like Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, people from Illinois, which is still entirely locked down, flocking up. There is a desire to get out and live life. You're seeing that all over the country. Those states that are, are more draconian, their lockdown measures are seeing protests. Uh, with respect to Allegiant destination locations and thinking about, you mentioned Las Vegas as an example, Mississippi is opening up and the casinos there uh, are having lines out the door, right? People are driving from a multi-state area to go and enjoy those facilities, but it's going to be different, right? Instead of 15 people at a craft table, you're going to have six. Uh, what I've read, Caesar's Palace and their slots, every other one will be activated, removing every other chair. So you will have that kind of, uh, of a reopening. I think it'll be staged. I think the companies themselves will have to learn as they go, but the pressure, uh, both politically and just, you know, <laughs> from a social perspective, to open up is, is growing. Uh, and, and that's not to say that we shouldn't do take precautions, of course. Uh, just looking at the statistics of the pandemic, we certainly need to protect those that are compromised and, and those individuals should think twice about going to a place like Las Vegas. But we do think it will open. It'll probably start sooner rather than later and be slower than expected in terms of how they adapt to this changing environment. Uh, and so the, the name of the game for some of these companies at this point is just Liquidity. It's, you, you have to have liquidity. You have to be solvent, uh, you know, in 12 months time. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I think the government was, was pretty quick to try to address some of those issues. More needs to be done. So we would anticipate future bills addressing that. And we would also anticipate uh, continued challenges in some of these states that are, are staying locked down perhaps uh, longer than uh, the citizens would like. You know, and you talk about this pent up demand. Anything that you've seen in terms of shifts in consumer behavior that will be a little bit more permanent? So I think in our a lot of people's minds, that's, well, we're going to reopen and we're going to at first we're going to be six feet apart. And then hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll be back to normal. Is that the way you see things uh, or is there another scenario that would lend itself to something a little bit different in terms of consumer behavior? 
we talk about this a lot, Ed, because just a few months ago, you know, our own Milwaukee Bucks are making a run. We, we thought it was our year. And going to games at the Pfizer Forum was a joy. But I suspect that individuals will think twice before going into a crowded arena like that. Not to mention the fact that the arena ownership or the, the managers of that facility uh, would have to be incredibly careful in terms of how they go about putting people in into a facility like that. So I think it'll take time until there's a vaccine. And the challenging aspect of this is there are many different coronaviruses. This is one. And we haven't found a vaccine for any, uh, as far as I'm aware. And, and so perhaps therapy is the way to go. And we're learning about this more every day in terms of what works, what doesn't. How should we respond as, as patients come in in terms of our, our front frontline health workers? So we do think behaviors will change to a certain extent. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I was speaking with a gentleman the other day that has to fly for work. And not only are the planes empty, but the experience is different. In this instance, they had to fly uh, to uh, Austin. And to do so, you have to go down to O'Hare and fly to Austin. And there are Texas Rangers waiting for you to get off the airplane, asking where you where you were coming from uh, and, and referencing if that is a hotspot. Uh, and, and if it is, then you're quarantined for 14 days. I mean, there's, there's a lot of challenges here and friction being built up in the system that's going to prevent us returning to any semblance of normalcy quickly. So I do think that that in and of itself will change some behaviors. Not to mention, as we sit here, I mentioned earlier, we are all in different locations conducting this session. And the comfort by which we are doing it, I think, couldn't have been predicted to, to the degree that, that it, we are feeling in, in the sense that our entire team, Ed, you and I have talked about this before in previous conversations, we're working incredibly effectively from home. So that begs the question, what is the use and what is the demand of office space in the future? We already knew we were over-retailed. Uh, what does this, this new concept of ordering from really nice restaurants and getting takeout uh, on, a, on a more normal basis. You have many businesses that didn't have that capability before, but were thrust into this and forced to adapt. And so now, how big does a restaurant need to be? What's the labor component? Uh, if you take a company like you know, you know, Jimmy John's, I've read that if you have drive-through or delivery, you're 80% where you were before in terms of revenue, but you're using half or even less labor, and therefore you're more profitable. So I think behaviors and business models will continue to change as a result of this, uh, of this pandemic. And until there's a vaccine, I just can't see us getting to some semblance of normalcy quickly. Yeah, and there, there, there's certainly a big divergence uh, in business models. Uh, and just to kind of stay on the theme of investable opportunities, um, let's talk about another consumer area, and that is retail. Uh, one of the stocks that you own in one of your portfolios is Burlington Stores. And one of the things I looked at here was since the bottom of the market in late March, this stock has rallied almost 50%. And that, that's way better than the overall stock market. And when you see a retailer have this kind of bounce back in their stock price, and you juxtapose that to the fact that JCPenney just went under and declared bankruptcy, what, what does a retailer like Burlington Stores have that so differentiates and makes them better and profitable versus a JCPenney, where 
arguably, you know, just on the surface, they're both kind of in that same area of like, well, we've got people going into the stores, they got people going out, and they sell merchandise. What's so different about these two? I would suggest that J.C. Penney had been mismanaged for some years. I'm not saying recently or a comment on, on knowing management particularly well, but versus other retailers that have adapted a little bit more quickly. Uh, it's, it's certainly a difficult area. And I would suggest that J.C. Penney sells non-differentiated items uh, as opposed to Burlington, which is more of a treasure hunting experience. But let's just back up for a second. In the midst of the pandemic, the reason why we bought Burlington was because of this, this consumer experience you get by going and finding fantastic deals in a variety of goods. But the nature of the model doesn't lend itself to online sales, which in the midst of a global pandemic when everything is shut down is a death knell. I mean, literally 99% uh, you know, revenue decline on day one, right? So that becomes a challenge in the short term. As you open back up, your example of JCPenney is exactly why we like Burlington. There is going to be an unbelievable opportunity for those with great balance sheets like Burlington that in the midst were able to raise a significant amount of liquidity to go on offense, not on defense, and take advantage of all this fantastic inventory that's going to be part of the liquidation process of some of these retailers. JCPenney will not be the last, right? There will be many more bankruptcies. Going into the last recession, which was, you know, the, the 2000s were really the story of accumulating consumer debt. And as a result, as consumers accumulated and bought more stuff on debt, there was a false sense of demand. It was too high because if you eliminate the credit aspect of it, which the great financial crisis did, you find yourself over retailed. Probably I've seen in some respects uh, four times the square footage than what we need. Now juxtapose that with the changing dynamic of the consumer and the innovation of Apple to do friction and, and Amazon to do frictionless uh, purchasing with your fingerprint on your phone. And why do I need to go into the store when I can get it delivered to my house? All that happened in the 2010s. Yet there still is a desire by the consumer to feel like they got a great deal and go out and find product that's relevant uh, with, with great brands at really attractive prices. And that's exactly where Burlington sits. So as we open and people are longing, as I mentioned, to go out and actually buy stuff, because from what I understand, and if you look at the data from MasterCard and Visa, you know, credit card bills are down substantially, right? Amazon's benefiting, Walmart's benefiting, uh, but in terms of the day-to-day -day random things that we purchase, uh, we, we haven't been doing that. And so there, there does seem to be a longing for that. Moreover, many people that are in industries like ours where we have the ability to work from home are somewhat unfazed by this just from a work standpoint. And in the short term, those that have been furloughed or misplaced Many are receiving assistance, in some cases, higher than what they would be making anyway. So the, the consumer right now is in okay shape. The question is, again, central to this entire conversation, what happens when those benefits run out? What happens uh, to the labor force as things start to open back up? Uh, and in the case of you know, Burlington, how quickly are people going to feel like they need to go into the stores uh, and, and, and our sense is, just based on little anecdotal ev evidence that we've seen and some of the small sample sets that we've seen in states that have started to open up, there is a desire to get out and shop, spend money, and live life. And I think we'll leave it there. Scott, thank you so much for taking some time to share yours and your firm's views about macroeconomics 
uh, dealing with the psychology of investing amidst significant market volatility, and how to be thinking about investable opportunities as we talked about Allegiant Travel and Burlington Stores and others in the marketplace. Appreciate the insights, and we are uh, very grateful uh, for the time that you have provided here for us. Uh, we think that uh, your organization uh, has a unique perspective and uh, definitely worthy of other people's time uh, to take a listen to. So thank you very much. What an opportunity to gain this kind of in-depth perspective from Scott and Ed regarding investment strategies and their overall economic viewpoints. You know, when we talk about firsthand insights from our investment research team, this is the kind of content that is delivered back to our plan sponsor clients. It is this level of research that prepares them to make informed decisions. At Francis, our philosophy is not only to guide plan sponsors through those decisions, but to ultimately make determinations that best serve the interests of plan participants. Again, a special thanks to Ed and Scott for joining us for Francis Investment Council's Fiduciary Advice at Work podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website, francisinvco.com. Thank you for listening, and please join us again soon as we continue to discuss industry trends and issues that affect retirement plan fiduciaries. 